you will turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. This morning's sermon is Draw Near to God, and we will be looking at Ecclesiastes 11, beginning in verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 12. The key words for our worshipers in training are rejoice, fear, and heart. So we will be finishing our walk through Ecclesiastes this morning. It has been helpful, I pray, for you. It has certainly been very helpful and challenging for me. Perhaps these verses we will look at today are the most important verses in the book of Ecclesiastes because it brings together everything that Solomon has been talking about. In some ways, it brings some relief to this constant tension that he's been creating with all the talk of vanity and meaninglessness, with simultaneous commands to enjoy life and to work hard on purpose and to fear God and obey God and to live life to its fullest because, after all, tomorrow we die. So Solomon is going to bring this to a conclusion, and I love the way he ends so Let's get started in verse 7 of chapter 11. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In other words, God created life. It can be beautiful and it should be enjoyed. God gives us many opportunities to enjoy life and he's addressed this several times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. I think about the things that bring great joy. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning and as I prayed, things that seem so small and yet they bring us such satisfaction. For me, it's fall nights on the back porch, the cool air, the sunset, a good book, maybe some friends, a fire in my fireplace, no mosquitoes. It's peaceful. It's joyful. The sound of my daughter laughing and playing, no cares in the world. A 300-yard drive down the fairway. A 40-foot putt in the hole. Seeing a good basketball game and a half-court shot at the buzzer. A perfect steak just off the grill. These are things that God has given us. And we ought to enjoy them. Let us not isolate these and consider them to not be a part of God's created order and all the beauty that He has created and given to us to enjoy and to bring Him glory through. Solomon has constantly called us to enjoy life, small and large, and to do so to the glory of God. Look at verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. So especially here, he's talking to those who are advanced in age. Enjoy the remaining days of your life. Rejoice in all your years. All that God has given you to experience. All that God has given you to enjoy. Solomon has repeatedly pointed to the fact that God gives enjoyment and we should live in and love and anticipate more of these moments in our lives. 
Family, friends, good fellowship, good food, long hours talking and laughing, sometimes about nothing. Again, a great gift from God. So as we advance in age, Solomon recognizes in his old age that we look back at these years and perhaps we'll ask, did I truly enjoy them? He's giving us a great exhortation here. Do so. Take advantage of those opportunities. Enjoy God. But Solomon is a realist. Look at the second part of that verse. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Enjoy life while it lasts, when you can, and remember, it's really hard most of the time. And then you die. That's Solomon. (laughs) That's who we've grown used to. Suffering will come. Sorrow will come. Depression will come. Stress will come. You may go months or years with relatively few days of enjoyment in your life and then you die. So, when there's enjoyment to be had, have it. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. Really, verses 7 and 8 summarize the two major themes in all the book of Ecclesiastes. Joy is good. Seek it. Sorrow is bad. Expect it. Seek joy and expect sorrow. The constant themes throughout the entire book. So, While Solomon is a realist, he's reminding us to create opportunities to enjoy all that God has given us. Enjoy life, love each other, laugh together, and realize you will weep together. You will have tensions with one another. You will question life sometimes. You will question love and joy. And then in the end, we die. But in the end, we can, we hope, in the midst of it all by God's grace, and as He's created it all for us to look at and marvel at Him, we can say with the psalmist, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, regardless of our circumstances. Why? Why should we? Well, because Solomon has reminded us constantly, God is sovereign. God has appointed a time and a place and a purpose for everything that happens. He is good. He is kind. He is gracious. Therefore, rejoice. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into Judgment. You know, for those who are young, the future is full of possibility. And I still have some of that in my life. It's slowly inching the other way. Slowly. The exhortation from Solomon in last week's text, the challenge to take risk, the challenge to attempt great things and expect great things, is really more appealing to those who are young. 
The constant what if of our youthfulness. What if I do this? What if I do that? That is very intriguing. There seems to come a time in most people's life where what if becomes far less than I wish I would have. Now, we can't do all the things that we what if, but we should do something and we should do it really, really well for the glory of the Lord. And we should strive to make it matter because it is unto him and not unto man. But Solomon points to this reality that in one's youth we are more free to take risks. So Solomon is appealing to young people. Rejoice that you are young. The tendency of the young is to want to be older. And the tendency of those who are older, because they've had both, is to be younger. So Solomon in his old age is telling those in their youth, enjoy it while it lasts. It doesn't last long. I remember that. It wasn't that long ago. Middle of my teenage years. Enjoy life. It goes quickly. Before you know it, decades pass by. It's true. Now Solomon's not calling those who are in their youth to follow their hearts and do as they please. This is the world's method of going through life, right? Follow your heart. We hear that frequently. Well, have you ever read Jeremiah 17:9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Solomon's wisdom is not to do whatever your heart says. That's suicide. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle John writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Solomon's exhortation is not to simply follow our hearts because following our hearts is following the desires of the eyes and the pride of life and flesh. These are passing away. But based on the end of verse 9, it is a call to holiness. He writes, God will bring you into judgment. A judgment here is literally the judgment, the final judgment, the great day of the Lord. That great day when Christ will return, He will bring His people unto Himself. The dead will be raised. Judgment will come. So verses 7 through 9 collectively are an exhortation from Solomon to rejoice responsibly, enjoy life's pleasures, and heed the wisdom, recognizing that the final judgment will come. Heed the wisdom of 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And in the midst of this, take risks for God 
Expect great things. Attempt great things. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remove whatever it is that vexes your body and your soul. What causes you worry and concern and anger and grieving and irritation? Do what you can to eliminate discouragement in your soul and damage to your body. And it's interesting to me that some of us, the second we start to sniffle, we're calling to make a doctor's appointment. My wife works in the medical field. I know you do it. But if our soul starts to get eaten up a little bit, and it goes on for weeks or months or years, sometimes it's a very long time before we ever actually do anything about it. Are we scared that someone's going to actually find out that we're sinners? Have you ever thought that you're actually prone to more sin as a result of not seeking to get help? This is Solomon's call to us. Physically, spiritually, get help when you need it. That's what community's for. That's why we're here together. That's what counseling is for. That's what discipleship is as we help each other walk through life, looking to the Scriptures together, that our souls not be devoured by our sins, but they be exposed and dealt with properly. Now Solomon's not suggesting that we can avoid suffering or escape pain for pleasure, but it's a call to care for physical and spiritual health. Be a good steward of your body. Be a good steward of your soul. What does that look like? Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, the most difficult part of discipleship is giving biblical counsel to a person knowing that they're probably going to ignore it and do as they please anyway. So we let the consequences of what is sown beat the trash out of them for a little while, praying they'll eventually come back saying, hey, that thing that we talked about, let's, uh, let's revisit that. Sometimes our spiritual vexations are a result of our stubborn unwillingness to actually do something about the sin in our lives. To take counsel, to walk faithfully in biblical wisdom. Rather, we go at it our own way and we are hoping for different results than the rest of mankind throughout human history. If you're walking with someone through that, it's a very painful thing to watch. I've been there too. It seems much more wise in our own eyes to try and figure it out and do it the best we can. The Lord has given us wisdom. And often that wisdom comes from 
others, of His people, we would do well to take their wisdom. That we would be able to remove vexation from our hearts. That we can walk in healthy spiritual lives. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Are you truly living with God as the first and highest priority in every single aspect of your life? This is a call to reject self-sufficiency and to be committed unto God alone. How you encounter life now has a profound impact on the next 20 or 30 years. Is God central in your life? Are you seriously pursuing God? Be honest. Or are you just playing games? Are you just going through the motions? Or are you really striving after holiness and fighting the flesh and conquering sin and worshiping in spirit and truth and seeking to, mo- to know more of God? Or are we just ho-humming along in life, hoping He's just going to drop godliness in our lap? We'll eventually start floating on the clouds and singing hymns in Hebrew. Don't blame God's sovereignty on on your lack of godliness in your life. Don't blame God's sovereignty on lacking in pursuing holiness. No, we're not going to walk in perfection, but we can be moving toward and making God more in our life and ourselves less. This is where our responsibility is great. And I think it's an area most of us are just too prideful and self-sufficient to actually admit we're not as sanctified as we put on externally. We are in constant battle to put ourselves at the center, to live upon self instead of living upon God. We lack union with God. We lack true communion with God. So we fall far short of our purpose in life to make much of God and to enjoy Him. We have to be comfortable admitting that to each other. If you and your life are 95% known by others, you are 100% unknown. If you don't let me into the real places of your heart where you fall short of making much of God and putting yourself on the highest throne, I don't know you. And if I'm not honest with all of you after about that 5% in my life, I'm not who you think I am. We have to be honest with each other as we pursue drawing near to God. Are we truly living with God as our first and highest priority in every aspect of our lives? Or are we more concerned with what the world is doing and with what the world says feels good to our flesh? If that's the case, we need to get help from one another. So what are we waiting for? Solomon, as an old man, 
has said, I've lived life unto myself. It doesn't work. Give it up. Look to the Lord now while today is still today. Do not delay. It is only a waste of your life. So Solomon seeks to prove his point here with a poem about the reality of mortality. Look at verse 2. He's following on from verse 1. Remember also your Creator. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So he's comparing old age to a constantly gathering storm. It rains, it comes and it goes, but the sky never clears before it rains again. So remember your Creator before this happens. Eventually you will get to a place when the skies always seem mostly gray. You're either confined to a bed or a room. You might remember who you are along with everyone else around you. When you're young, there's still time for the sky to clear. Take advantage of it for the sake of the Lord and for the good of your own soul. Verses 3 through 5. Remember also your Creator in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low they are afraid also of what is high and tares are in the way the almond tree blossoms the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets so let's look at what he's addressing here He's comparing those who are elderly to a house that is slowly crumbling with decay. The keepers of the house tremble. He's talking about one's arms. Strong men are bent. The legs. Grinders. I kind of think this one's funny. The grinders cease because they are few. Teeth, <laughs> windows, your eyes, the doors, your ears, the sound of the bird. He's saying those in their old age have trouble with sleep. The daughters of song, he's talking about one's vocal cords. And they're afraid of falling, they're afraid of being attacked. He says, the almond tree blossoms. Do you know what an almond tree looks like when it blossoms? It's white with flowers. He's talking about the hair, uh, the gray hairs of the elderly. The grasshopper drags itself along. Sounds like a very sick grasshopper, does it not? It's not jumping. It's not moving as it's designed. And desire and pleasure is diminished. And so one day the house collapses. And this fate awaits everyone who lives to an old age. 
Many of you are older than me, and you can attest to the truth of this. But the last few years have revealed for me that some of this is inching toward becoming more and more of a reality for me. Decades get shorter. It takes longer to get out of bed. And eventually, I hear that most things will come with some level of discomfort that we sort of just learn to deal with in time. And this too, Solomon is telling us, is why we need to remember our Creator while we are young. Don't delay. Take advantage of today. He goes on in verse 6, Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Something precious, something beautiful, that's you, will eventually break. Your desires and your pleasures will diminish. Do you like golfing? You won't always. You like running or sewing or hunting or reading? Those things become more and more difficult until we simply no longer want to do them. And so Solomon's saying today, use it. You have a set of teeth, you have a pair of eyes, you have good knees, maybe a decent back. Use it, enjoy it, pursue, pursue the things of God with it. Because as some here today can tell you, tomorrow is already almost gone. And it's a shame to look back in life at the what ifs and the what could have beens when we're completely unable to do anything about it. He goes on in verse 7, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Your body, your life is on loan. Eventually, your Creator will take it back. What does that do to our understanding of individuality? When we begin to grasp this reality, that we are not our own Self-sufficiency begins to lose some of its appeal. Your soul belongs to someone else, namely God Himself. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 tells us that we were made from the dust. And Solomon is telling us, to the dust we will return. These are the sober realities of life and death that all of us face unless we die young. So Solomon is calling us to remember our Creator now. You know, I've talked to some people in my life who have said, you're too young to be concerned about all this Jesus stuff. Enjoy life. It won't last long. You, can't, you can worry about all of that stuff later. Well, no, the fact that life doesn't last long is exactly why I'm called to be so concerned about all this Jesus stuff. I'm here today, and tomorrow I see Him face to face. Young people, listen here. Solomon is calling you to remember God now. 
when you still have your wits about you, when you're still charting your course in life and making important decisions about what to do with your gifts and with your life, Remember God in the midst of those decisions. Remember God before you forget the God who made you and make bad decisions that you will regret later. Remember God when you still have a full lifetime to live for the glory of God. Remember God now. Don't put it off for later. Charles Bridges wrote, Many have remembered too late, none too soon. We must remember our Creator. And as we grow older, we can be encouraged in this as well. Our Creator remembers us, even if the day comes when we no longer are physically able to remember Him. God does not forsake us. The great thing is not as much of our remembering God as is His remembering us all of our days. Jesus said, as recorded in John 6, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day we can be encouraged by the promise of the resurrection that those who die believing in Christ will live again and will be young forever. Like Solomon, the Apostle Paul understood that one day the old house of this earthly body will be destroyed. But as the servant of a Savior who rose from the grave, he also believed that our bodies would be rebuilt. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This new house is the resurrection body of everyone who believes in Jesus, in His cross, and in the empty tomb. And so there's a great encouragement in the midst of this. And yet a reminder that our body, our life is on loan. It belongs to the Lord. It will return to the dust. Make the most of it while you still can. Look at verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. These were the first words of Solomon in chapter 1 and verse 2, and this is where he brings it to an end. But while he brings us back to where we began, we have to consider after walking through Ecclesiastes that hopefully we're not the same people we were. We hopefully have a bigger perspective on life. Solomon has shown us how vain life is. So when we hear him at the end of the book make the same statement, it strikes with greater force. Because we know what he means by that through the multitude of examples he's given us. 
He's told us that work is vanity, that there is nothing from us to gain from restless toil under the sun. He said all is vanity, striving after the wind. Human wisdom is vanity. It only increases our sorrow and our vexation. Wisdom and foolishness, it doesn't really matter what you have because all, it, uh, because all of us die in the end. Pleasure is vanity, wine, women, songs, parks, houses, vineyards, gold, silver, treasure. He's addressed all of this, and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. It is all vanity. Power is vanity. Money is vanity. And even if we manage our money well, in the end, it cannot satisfy our souls. And then we see the last of all the vanities, and that is death. We will have to endure the indignities of growing old. And after that, the final vanity is returning to the ground from which we came. Dust we are, and to the dust we shall return. It seems so bleak. And perhaps why so many read Ecclesiastes with a hint of pessimism. But remember, Solomon has pointed that it's not like we never have joy. Solomon has repeatedly encouraged us to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our work. There is a time for everything under the sun, and we should rejoice in the prosperity that God so richly provides and to enjoy life with the one we love. There is joy in the world under the blessings of a faithful God. So as we compare the list of all that Solomon has pointed out, we can conclude he's helping us to see the meaningless, the meaninglessness of life without God. If you are moving through life today without a heart transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, your life lacks ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose and true joy apart from Christ That joy is impossible to find because He is the ultimate source. In the end, if there is no God, there is no judge. And if there is no judge, there is no final judgment. And if there is no final judgment, there is no ultimate meaning. Nothing matters. Human existence is a pointless litigation ending in meaningless despair. It's over and it was all vanity. But with God, a life lived unto God and not unto self is a life full of meaning and purpose. Here's what I love about how Solomon ends. Vanity is not the last word. Look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So Solomon reminds us that he has brought together the teaching of Ecclesiastes for our good with great care and integrity to lead us and to help us learn from all of his failures in life. 
You know, there is no teacher like life. We can read, we can study, we can get more degrees than Fahrenheit, but nothing exists that is like on-the-job training. I've read a lot of books and I've taken a lot of classes about counseling. The first time I sat down to counsel someone, guess what? (laughs) Nothing I ever learned. It happens all the time. Life is the great teacher. Human wisdom and philosophy are limited. We need God, the great cause and sustainer of all things. Solomon says that his words are like goads. Goads are a sharp stick that's used to prod an animal, to keep them moving. The intention was not to cause pain. So Ecclesiastes is a good prod. When we're thinking my stuff is important, Ecclesiastes reminds us it's not going to bring you satisfaction. When we are tempted to forget about God, Ecclesiastes reminds us, remember your Creator, the judgment is coming. When we're tempted to think, I will live forever, Ecclesiastes faithfully reminds us time and again, you will return to dust. He says the words of Ecclesiastes are like nails. They're driven into the mind, they're driven into the heart, and they stay there. Life may be a vapor, but wisdom helps nail it down and gives us a place to hang our experiences. And Solomon points to the treasure chest of wisdom that comes from living life. He highlights the importance of the command in Titus that older men would be seeking out younger men to pour into to share wisdom and experience of godly life. Older women would be seeking out and investing in younger women to share wisdom and experience from godly life. You know, I like to dream big and think about the future for our church. Can you imagine what we would be like in 10 to 15 years if we took this single command in Titus seriously? If all of our older men and older women who have walked with the Lord for years and years were intentionally seeking out younger men and women to share their godly lives with, to share wisdom with them, to help them along the journey, can you imagine what kind of church we would be if we took this really seriously? Some of us know a lot, but nobody would ever know it. Why? That's for you to answer why. Wisdom comes with life, and it's not simply for us to have and to hold on to. The Lord commands us to use that in the community He's placed us in for the good of everyone. Now, notice the word shepherd in verse 11. If you have the ESV, that word shepherd is capitalized. Solomon is referencing God Himself. So he's saying the words of the wise are the words of God. John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And so words of wisdom that are godly are from God himself. God speaking through his people as revealed in his word. Let's finish verse 13, the end of the matter 
All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's how he concludes. Fear God and obey his commandments. Recall, Solomon's called us to fear God several times throughout the book. Fear God because His work is eternal. Fear God because He demands worship. Fear fear God in times of adversity and prosperity. Fear God and it will go well with you. And now He's telling us in verses 13 and 14, Fear God because one day you will stand before Him for judgment. Fearing God for the believer refers to heartfelt devotion. It's not antithetical to love for God, but it's simply a way of viewing the same affectionate admiration from another perspective. This is why Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I commanded you today for your good. Now, Moses doesn't list all the various virtues of biblical life to express a godly disposition and a godly outward action. He uses concise language to summarize it and he's saying fearing God and loving God. God describes the motive that God desires in His people to fuel their service. And here's the connection. When one puts awe or fear together with affection or love, he gets admiration. Or to borrow the language of Psalm 2.11, he gets rejoicing with trembling. That's what we want. That's what he's calling us to. To rejoice before the Lord with trembling. That sounds like the perfect summary of the whole book, does it not? So joy in God is not a shallow and superficial giddiness. It's deep. It's a kind of devotion that includes the components of reverence and awe and admiration And with this in view, the enjoyment of God as our chief end, as our purpose in life, is virtually synonymous with love for God. It includes a fear of God. And it calls us into faith and obedience. So Solomon says that this is the whole duty of man. Literally, this is the whole man. In other words, this is all that life is about. Fearing God and obeying His commandments, it is more important than everything else, worshiping God and obeying God. And after all our days, we arrive at the throne of judgment. Did you worship? Did you obey? Now why does Solomon end like this? Because it proves that everything really does matter. We've seen it time and again all throughout Ecclesiastes. Is this all there is? Isn't there more to life? Is there, is there purpose or meaning? Can I find true hope? Can I find true joy? 
Well, if you have no God and there is no judgment, then it's all vanity. But if you worship and obey God and there is a judgment, every single thing matters. This life is not all that there is. God in heaven rules. And one day the dead will be raised and all who have ever lived will face the judgment. When the day comes, everything said or done will be revealed as eternally significant. And so the final word of Ecclesiastes is everything matters. He doesn't end with grace per se, but the judgment warning but he's pointing us to the gospel of grace. If there is a judgment, then what? If you're outside of Christ, please listen now. If you do not know, if you do not trust, if you do not love, if you do not follow Jesus, just give me one more minute. God has a perfect standard called His law. And you cannot fulfill it. And you have not fulfilled it. His standard for every man, woman, and child that has ever lived is perfection. And since, the Bible tells us, we are conceived in our mother's womb in sin, we've already fallen short of that perfect standard. Therefore, we are all sinners. We are all worthy of the wrath of God, deserving of God's wrath, deserving of God's punishment because we have committed cosmic treason. We've broken the law of our Creator. But the same God who is the perfect judge... If he is a just judge, he cannot let sin run free. He cannot simply release without sin being punished. He's an unjust judge otherwise. And so, the same God who's storing up wrath also has stored up grace and gave His Son Jesus to make a way that we not need to receive His wrath. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. If you are outside of Christ, He commands you to repent of your sin and to believe on Jesus because the judgment is coming. He is patiently enduring with much wrath, ready to be revealed from heaven. He calls us to believe on Christ, that we would live life eternal. And as we come to the final judgment, that we not run away in fear, but we stand boldly before the throne of God with sure confidence because our righteousness is not found in ourselves or what we've done or what we've sought to accomplish, but in what Christ has done on our behalf. And every single one of us in here who is in Christ can rejoice greatly because of that. Because we can go through life and take great risk and live in obedience to God. He's given us that desire. He's given us a way. And when we fail, we fail. But we fail to the glory of God. 
Because in the end, He will do it all for Himself. And we will be with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, rejoicing and praising and worshiping Christ forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you so very much for your word. Thank you so very much for Ecclesiastes, for Solomon, for all that you have shown us in these chapters, in these words. Thank you, O Lord, that you have given us much in this life to enjoy and rejoice in, and yet that you have clearly reminded us that this life will be full of trial and pain and suffering as a result of the fallen condition of creation. And yet beyond that, O Lord, thank You that You have revealed to us that life is so much more than here and now. Life is lived eternally. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone here today is to face the judgment apart from Christ, that you would give them new life in Jesus. That you would awaken them from the dead, transform their hearts, and that they would be set free from the bondage of, and slavery of sin. They would be made new creations in Christ they'd be born again. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the warning of the judgment. And thank You most of all for Christ who has made a way. You are good to us. We love You and we thank You. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.